You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. The Archaeology Podcast Network is sponsored by Codify, a California benefit corporation. Visit Codify at www.codifi.com. Ancient tools and burials, plants and seeds, Neanderthals. Welcome to the Archaeological Fantasies Podcast, Episode 59, the Monster Talk Crossover Edition. Today, the Archaeological Fantasies and the Monster Talk Podcast join forces to debunk one of the most disnified creatures out there, fairies. We talk about what fairies are, where they possibly came from, how the idea of fairies has changed throughout the years, and if there is any archaeological evidence for fairies to exist. Get ready to think critically. I'm not sure. I know we've mentioned you before, and we've had Ken on before, um, and I definitely endorse your podcast. I've listened to all of it and really enjoy it. Oh, thanks. But maybe we should get introductions from everybody. We'll going to start with Sarah. My name's Sarah. I'm an archaeologist. I've been, I've worked in the field, and I've worked in the lab. Um, I've got about 15 years under my belt now, so if you do your math, you can figure out how old I am. We've been doing, well, I've been doing the Archie Fantasies pod, uh, the Archie Fantasies blog now for... I want to say going on seven years, and the podcast, I think, is turning two at the end of this year. So, and you're going to beat us in numbers really quickly. <laughs> well, we just recently went to a weekly format, so we're wow. kind of cheating, I guess. It's ambitious. I like it. <laughs> yeah, we, we went from a bi-monthly format, so we, I guess, bi-weekly format, so we were doing every two weeks, and then our producer asked if we were willing to try to do the weekly and uh, that's when we brought Jeb on as our second co-host. So Jeb and Ken are, they alternate weeks, which is why if you started listening to the podcasts around, I want to say episode 40-ish, you'll notice that the co-host on the show changes each episode. That's neat. Yeah, it's been really cool, actually. I've enjoyed it a lot because you get two different voices out there. Um, and Jeb and Ken, though they're both very knowledgeable, they're both really knowledgeable kind of in different areas. And so it's really neat having two people who can bring so much different stuff to the podcast. And then we do crazy things like the movie episode where we just yeah. all three get together and talk about There's movies. There's been a few of those recently. Yeah. I enjoy yeah, having it, all three of them. I, I enjoy having all three of us on. It's yeah. kind of fun. Yeah, this it's is kind of, there's, a cool, there's a cool synergy. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So, Jeb, who are you? Uh, yeah, hi. I'm, uh, I'm also an archaeologist, and I've been teaching at uh, Miami University for the last six years as a visitor and other titles and whatnot. And I work in – I've done archaeology in North America in, in a number of places, but my, my research is primarily in Mesoamerica, especially in El Salvador, uh, on both colonial stuff and on, uh, to some degree, classic Maya stuff. And I also write about these things. I uh, have been getting a few things out there on why archaeology can at times be so really weird. Jeff wrote a book. Yes, he did. Well, yeah, and that's uh, that's a that's something I'm. Uh, the the press is actually going to editorial board tomorrow to make some finalizations. So by the time this is out, either I'll be I, I'm pretty happy about some reviews I got recently, so I'm happy about that. So anyway, um, and one of our anyway, I'm not gonna say any further. No worries. So, <laughs> that's so what I do. Who's Ken? Who's Ken then? Who's Ken? Who is this Ken? Who's Ken? Well, you know, listen. So I what what the hell is my title, Sarah? Am I permanent guest? No, permanent, permanent guest. guest. Permanent well, guest would go to Jeb. 
Uh, whatever the hell I am. So I, I do all the, you know, people who listen to this podcast, these podcasts know who the hell I am. So I've done a, uh, I'm this co-host or whatever of archaeological fantasies. And I've been on a bunch of uh, monster talk episodes. So I swing both ways nice. when it comes to these podcasts. And I'll, yeah, I'll just leave it. I'm an archaeologist. Sorry. Yes. No. Well, you, you, know, so you, you wouldn't describe yourself, right? <laughs> you wouldn't describe yourself as bi, but you would describe yourself as buy my book. <laughs> but, oh, Jesus Christ! This is why I don't do that many of the monster talk ones because Blake is just—he's just incorrigible. I just and, want to point um, out that Ken's introduction for himself is, "I am this. I am such a big deal. You should already know who I am." That—that that was Ken's introduction. Archie Fantasies listeners may not know myself or Karen. So, Karen, would you like to introduce yourself? Okay, I'm a host of Monster Talk. Awesome. <laughs> um, I'm Karen Stolzner, Dr. Karen Stolzner. I'm a linguist and a host of Monster Talk and an author of a number of books, uh, God Bless America, Language, Myths, and a novel I just released called Hits and Misses. Oh, good one. And she, she's the qualified person on the show, and I'm, I'm Blake Smith. There, there's no qualification to talk about monsters. <laughs> I'm a monsterologist. <laughs> yeah, monsterologist. <laughs> Do you have a PhD in monsterology? I do, from uh, Thunderwood College, yeah. So. There's a really good <laughs> series of books called The Monsterologist, so you should read those. I, I, it would, it, I actually just uh, picked up one on the Monster Hunters series, which is, I think, similarly themed. So anyway, I'm the host and producer of, of Monster Talk, and uh, like Karen, I've just been very good with monsters and skepticism for a long time. So this is a really great synergy for us uh, to talk about this, especially because the topic for tonight uh, is fairies and archaeology. And so um, I think uh, based on material that Jeb shared with us, um, this should be a fun conversation. Absolutely. Where do we start? Yeah, there's a lot to cover. There is. Are we, we've got a page and a half of notes, I think. And, and, they you make know, no sense, though. So well, that's true. Them. <laughs> silly bullets. <laughs> I, I guess one thing is I, I'd like to just mention um, and Jeb may even want to speak to this, is for a lot of people, uh, fairies are things like Tinkerbell and Disney movies. And, you know, they're happy, friendly, fun, winged creatures, humanoid, uh, magical, friendly powers. Uh, and that's just not historically uh, how the folklore of fairy go. They, they have a very dark history and they fit very nicely in the Munch Talk world. And they have some really cool overarching, you'll pardon the accidental fun, uh, <laughs> qualities with, uh, with archaeology. So uh, let's Let's start there. Well, I the best way I would, I mean, this is sort of not burying the lead, but kind of getting right to the lead. If you want to think about fairies before, say, Disney and fairies before, say, the children's stories of the 19th century, think of how we think of aliens today, like in the 20th and 21st century. That's pretty close where there are the bright, shining people like the, uh, like, you know, we have today, what are they, the Nordics and the and the Talls or the Highs, or whatever they're called by alien contactees, and then creepy-ass people that terrify you at night and have all kinds of mystical powers and strange metal objects that defy the laws of reality, and they hide and they're often tied to archaeological sites, you know, hence ancient aliens. That's actually a lot closer to how things like uh, every every sort of name, fairies and dwarves and elves and shehi and all these, and I'm probably, I can, I can hear, I can hear historians uh, of medieval Europe and all that freaking out that I'm lumping together this and that. But I think as we're going to see, it's it's not actually that inappropriate. And when you, and when you look at, at, at North America, Native North America, uh, stories of the little people that sound very often share many of these same kind of general characteristics. 
they are not good guys. They are little. They live in the woods. Um, they're seen only at a distance. And you have to be – don't make eye contact with them because you'll get in trouble. And you have to leave them things or they'll be mad at you. And so they are – they're powerful and dangerous, not necessarily evil, but they're something to be – something that, that you have to deal with if you live in – especially the eastern woodlands of the United States – so th- those little people are the equivalent of um, fairies. Yeah. And if you move into, into Central America, I mean, in, in Yucatan, you have the Alushol, the singular Alush, that are, are very similar. And they are sometimes glossed with duendes, which is the Spanish equivalent. And I, mean, I have colleagues uh, working at sites in Yucatan in the 2000s talking about house mounds. And this is an area that's extremely familiar with archaeology. Uh, house mounds, like, oh no, that, that one's inhabited by, by Alushol, and they live in these little clay figurines uh, which come alive at night. And don't mess with that. Confused with, with the Shihalu, the sandworms of Dune. No, those are, those, are, those are much, much bigger. <laughs> <laughs> so, go ahead, sorry, Karen. Oh, I was going to move on, so if you had a follow-up. Go well, I was just going to say that from a skeptical perspective, I don't think lumping them together would be the right way to characterize that. I would think that uh, something we look at a lot on Monster Talk is that monsters often serve as a way to explain unexplained things. So there, it could be an attribution error. Um, people always want to attribute agency when they don't understand the cause of things. And, and that agency being done by invisible agents could be, they could be uh, aliens, they could be, they could be fairies, they could be other kinds of creatures. But throughout the world, the idea that there are these hidden creatures who are just outside of our, uh, our senses and, and just sort of affect us. It seems to be a common thing yeah. everywhere. Well, and I, I think this does tie into archaeology. One of the things I have been working on in, in, in various things is, is something I like to call extra humans or, or people who are not people. So if you go back to, uh, if you, so for example, if you go to the British Museum today in their Enlightenment room, which looks at the history of museums, the history of collecting and so on, uh, there will be John Dee's mirror that he got from the Aztecs and, and all these things. And next to that will be a chipped stone tool, a chipstone arrowhead or projectile point. I'm not going to say it's on an arrow, but it's about the size. It would, be, it would work nice on an arrow in the Mesolithic or the Neolithic. But it had been mounted in silver at one point uh, because it was elf shot. If you go sure. into sort of medieval lore, you have basically the idea that rather than these stone tools being made by ancient humans, they're being made by uh, elves today or then. Uh, that That's how you get sick. You get shot by them. And in fact, there there are there are witch trial documents from the 17th century in Scotland that talk about people going into the hills and get getting elfy headies, elf heads, elf stones, these basically ancient projectile points, grinding them up for 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 medicines to to save people. That have, and this is very like you know the you have to have elf magic to survive like a Morgul blade in, in in Tolkien in the Lord of the Rings. And what I think is going on here, I don't think this explains all of these, but I think it's very much something we see, is when people run into these things, like, well, somebody made this. I don't know who made this. Did your ancestors make No. Did somebody in a written book? No. Well, then somebody else made this. And, and I think we see a lot of that even in a lot of things we call pseudoscience today. And in uh, Game, of, Game of Thrones. <laughs> is, is that is that a thing in there? Yeah, they, uh, they have the children of the... Forests, uh, right. which are basically fairies or elves, mm-hmm. and they use obsidian to fight the uh, White Walkers. <laughs> yeah. so, as you do. Yeah. yeah. So it's basically chip, chip obsidian tools are one of the few things that can kill these magical beings. So, 
to follow up on what Jeb just was talking about, the Ashley and hand axes that are even older than the tools he's talking about, those were called fairy stones. Yeah. And, and also thunderstones, but the, again, they were being attributed to, we don't know who, somebody made these, we didn't make them, there's nothing in the Bible that talks about a time when people were making nothing but stone tools, so there's got to be some other agency, some other uh, source for these, and it must be fairies. Well, it's yeah. interesting that you bring that up, because when I was doing some research on um, the Native American little people, especially out in Southwest area, it's Interesting because a few of them, not all of them, but a few of them are attributed with giving the knowledge of stone tools to their respective tribes. So it's it's interesting that the fae or the little people are so directly connected in some cases to the manufacture of stone tools. Well, I I think our modern, I mean, I, I, as I said, I think our modern equivalent of this is aliens. And look at the most popular form of aliens today, ancient aliens. And it's pretty much the same thing. Well, did did my people make this? Well, those people couldn't make it because they're inferior. And that gets back to our, our right. the fact that racism is such a big part of pseudo-archaeology. All oh, aliens must have done it. Well, yeah, especially, our, when you throw in, especially when you throw in Von Daniken's reinterpretation of the book of Genesis and the whole fall of yeah. the angels. And the angels were the ones that gave the knowledge. And Daniken's like, no, no, those were actually aliens. Yeah. So now we have well, aliens gifting the knowledge. and. And one of the major explanations for what fairies are is, in fact, the fallen angels thrown out of heaven and they land and, you know, they, they became fairies or mermaids or whatever, depending on where they landed. Right. And like you said earlier, that actually that whole them becoming either angels or demons actually happened after Christianity started rolling through the area. Right. And and you see the same thing. I mean, the I'm not saying that there was not the idea of the Alushob before colonialism. In, Mes in Mesoamerica or, or similar things, but that's, I think there's some syncretism going on there where you've got the European traditions and local traditions and the fact that older things, older traditions were being literally demonized. And, and we see this in, in the Middle East as Islam begins to spread, just as Christianity spread in Europe, as Islam spreads across the Middle East, uh, everything starts to be attributed to, or many things start to be attributed to jinn. And the yeah, jinn become evil. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hey, listen, we could start, we, we, we right now can start a, a brand new internet meme where we could have a picture of Jeb with Jeb saying, I'm not saying it was fairies, <laughs> but it was fairies. <laughs> Jeb doesn't have, a, Jeb doesn't have wild enough hair. No, I do not. I do not. You could use and grow it. <laughs> Although earlier this earlier this week, I did a video for an online course where I dressed up as a stereotypical caveman, and I kind of did have hair like nice. that. Well, you <laughs> missed your opportunity, Jeb. <laughs> so, yeah. well, speaking of uh, uh, Jen, I, I, that's something that I find interesting is this attribution of uh, these ancient creations to some magical power or aliens. It seems to be the same kind of. Uh, thinking where you, you yeah. attribute it to something supernatural when you don't understand how it was done. And I was wondering, is that idea that Jinn, specifically thinking about the Ring of Solomon, Jed, did you happen to look into how old the story of Solomon's ring is? Is it actually an ancient story or is it like 600s, 800s? You know, I don't know how, that, that, that kind of falls a little outside my purview. I, I have to say we had, uh, we had Jason Colavito on the show recently. And he dives deep into that kind of like classical stuff and medieval stuff. And as, not unlike my, I mean, I do some of that, but not unlike my, my, my intro course, Lost Cities and Ancient Civilizations. I often tell the kids, you know, once we get into that stuff, I kind of kick out. If you can find that over in the history department, I, I sort of 
yeah. I sort of kick out. But it's it. I think it is fairly old. I mean, uh, you you do have a lot of these things have a lot deeper roots than you might suspect. Well, the trick with Solomon's ring, though, here's the interesting tidbit there, and this happens to be one of those weird things that I happen to just know. Mm-hmm. There's no actual mention of a ring of Solomon. It was the seal of Solomon, and everyone true. and everyone right. just assumes that it is a ring, but it doesn't actually become a ring until, uh, I believe there's a short story, I think there was a short story written, I think it was uh, Roger Zelaney that wrote it first. I don't know, I don't know, my timeline might be off. But the concept of the the Seal of Solomon being a physical ring is a modern, more modern thing, where the Seal of Solomon's never actually ever described. Like, it could have been a plaque, it could have been a stamp, it could be a ring, but it's never actually given a description in any of the te- in the, the older texts, the religious texts. That's right. a very good correction. Thanks. Yeah, and, and uh, given yeah. that people were obsessing about it for a very long time and making up all kinds of crap about it, yeah, you're not going to get any closer to that short of finding some much older text. Yeah, I think it's one of those things kind of like the Holy Grail where it just kind of, there's a mention of it at some point and then suddenly yeah. it just like becomes its own thing. Yeah, no, exactly. Philosopher's Stone. Right, exactly. Sort of, yeah. So I, I had a question for Jeff. Yes. So uh, the, the Celtic stories of fairies. To, yes. Today, if you walk into some small community in Scotland or Wales or Ireland and you ask about fairies, will you get people who will tell you, oh, yeah, they're real. We encounter them. They're, well, they're off. Is that is that still an ongoing thing, or do they wink and nod and say every well, every couple of years you'll have news reports, you'll have this, you'll have people talk about this, and that almost I mean it's one of those things where I'm not sure you can answer that. I mean I guarantee that you will find people that actually absolutely believe in this. But yeah. then there's the sort of I forget who it was. It was an author a few years ago. He was talking about this sort of effect where there was the one guy who would show up in every Jersey Devil <laughs> documentary yes. and every Jersey Devil news report, and he like would just tell the story. <laughs> and, and 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 the author had talked to him, was like, yeah, I don't believe most of this, or do I? You know, I, I I think that falls into it. So one of the ones I I I, I start my my chapter on this in 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 the volume with. In 2011, the, the richest guy in Ireland, Sean Quinn, he loses all of his money. He has some other weird things going on with him. And there were people that were happy to be quoted in the Belfast Telegraph saying, well, yeah, the fa- it was because he moved a, uh, a Neolithic uh, burial right. mount, and uh. it was the fairies that did it. Now, am I going to hook him up to like a lie detector? But then you find people that absolutely do talk about being right. visited by fairies, just as you've got people who talk about being Bigfoot habituators. Uh, right, right, right. I think there's a spectrum. I, well, let, yeah. me, let me just say that in my life, I anecdotally know someone who not only believed in fairies, but believed that they were a fairy, and that, that that's not a matter. Oh, yeah, the whole thing. I yeah. have friends that believe that they are of fairy descent, so yes. The other kin business? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's like it's vampires, a, hey? Yes. People believe in their vampires. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it, it's an interesting thing that Jeb said about, you know, you, they, they talk about the same people show up and in all of these documentaries, and they're the ones who are the true believers. The same is true for Loch Ness. There was, there was a period of time in the 1980s when there were a number of Loch Ness documentaries. And if you watch them, you kept seeing the same people over and over and over again who are absolutely certain, yes, I've seen the monster. And the other people, you get, get this impression that it's like, well, come on, folks, this is about tourism. We want people to come here. So, oh, yeah, we're pretty sure it's real. But there were a small, small cadre 
of people who I suppose actually were true believers in these things. Yeah, now, or, or or it's just that it's fun. I mean, why? Yeah, would, you know, sure. It's kind of well, screw with you know the people that parachute in. They do like the forty-eight hour like stay in the local B and B, and then they get out or the Best Western, and you know tell them some tell them some line or or tell them something you actually believe because hey, this is your time to do it. Right. So yeah. here's a question for Blake and Karen then, because you know we're supposed to be cross-examining each other. That's right. You guys come at this from a skeptical point of view, which obviously we do as well, but. You know, we try to look at everything through an archaeological lens and try to look at it, which gives us, you know, history and that kind of stuff. So how are you guys, how do you guys tackle something like fairies? Well, I think we'd normally look at cases. So particular stories, famous incidents and claims, uh, and then to, to look into uh, how legitimate they are and to try and do some historical research, I think, to begin with. Uh, but I think rather than just saying, oh, fairies don't exist or fairies do exist, to, to look at the individual cases. I would concur. That that seems to be um, one of the biggest things that happens in in our kind of work is that we want to look at uh, specifically what are the phenomena that are being reported. Uh, you know, what what evidence is there to support it? I, I, one of the interesting things that uh, is in the Jeb covers a little bit is the the, the mysterious death of uh, Netta Cornario, mm -hmm. and. Um, that that's one of the kind of cases where there's lots and lots of people. And I guess maybe we should let Jeb kind of give an overview of that. But lots and lots of people who would like to make that into a supernatural case. And I'm not really sure that the evidence really supports that uh, approach. But it certainly is fascinating, and it certainly is some. You know, we we both I think really love this lore, and uh, you know, we just do tend to spend more time trying to figure out if there's any veracity to it. Would you like to get more involved with archaeology? Are you looking for volunteer or internship opportunities? Are you already working on community or personal archiving projects and could use some helpful hints? Check out the Ideas Portal, sponsored by Codify. Visit ideas.codify.com, a free and open community tool, and share your ideas, knowledge, and advice on select topics that will lead to vibrant opportunities and initiatives for all aspects of archaeology, from fieldwork to public service. All ideas are welcome, so visit ideas.codify.com today and make your voice heard. That's ideas.codifi.com. Yeah, can you tell us the story here? Yeah, so I mean, this is this is in uh, the 1920s. You got you got Netta Fornario, Mary uh, Emily Netta Fornario. She was a member. So one of the things that I let's. Uh, Let's wind this back a little. Let's let's, yeah, let's yeah. actually build to that story rather than start. Well, let me let me say what is found. Let's let's look at this actually like an archaeologist. Look at the surface collection. And on the surface collection on the island of Ionia in Scotland in the 1920s, you have uh, a young woman who has gone up there and she is found dead on a mound. The 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 Sheathian Moor, the great fairy uh, mound or the great fairy hill, and she's wearing a robe and she's wearing silver jewelry, which was supposedly tarnished, and she has a knife nearby her, and this is chalked up to elementals and to fairies and other sorts of forces. But how we get to her, I think, is actually and, and sort of talking about approaches is is a fascinating thing because she's part of this much bigger kind of occult underground that's based in in London. Uh, she had been in various magical societies before this. And we titled this episode Archaeology of Fairy. And you might be go, oh, did you dig one up? You know, did you did you find did did Jaime Masson give you one? Funny no, story. that is not what we did. Um because here's something that I suspect the audience is probably not terribly aware of. 
In the late 19th century, there was very serious debate in the sort of early archaeological community of whether fairies were friggin' real. Like, actual debate, as in, like, people would gather in professional and quasi-professional conference and discuss this idea. And what this kind of ties into, if, by the way, a, not a, everything, a, sort of some core parts of what I'm talking about here, if you want to learn more about this, in addition to some other stuff we'll talk about, look up Carol Silver's book, 1999, Strange and Secret Peoples, Fairies and Victorian Consciousness. Because at the beginning of the show, we were like, oh, Tinkerbell and fairies and all that. That's because of the Victorians. They really domesticated this idea that had been around. They became obsessed with them in the 19th century, in no small part because they had been tied to archaeology, as we've been talking about before. So as the sort of the shocks of modernity kind of ripple across Victorian consciousness of evolution, of deep time, of our relatively small place in sort of space and time on, on, on this planet, you had a number of what are called antiquarians, kind of like proto-archaeologists, and folklorists, and they're often the same people, and early archaeologists, they actually went to that ancient lore that came from the edges of history, both physically and spatially, and they tried to plug it into archaeology. So you had ideas like, oh, that fairies were a memory of an ancient race, a, a, a Turanian race of pygmies, of dark-skinned pygmies, of these and that. A lot of colonial tropes got kind of replayed, and that they had been vanquished by iron-using people, which if you go back to old fairy lore, there's a whole idea that they are repelled by cold iron. Where does that like, come from? I, well, I think it makes... I, I don't know where the original comes from. I know it's older, but I think that reinforces it, this this sort of idea. Yeah, the idea that the people with the iron technology wiped out the people with the stone technology. Right. right. But I, I was wondering if that's what it was, but... I think it's older than that, though. I think, that, it's the, I think they adapted it to that. That's also, I think, to some, at least in my reading, why they pit, the horseshoe is considered to be good luck, right? Gotcha. Uh, right, yeah. it's iron. Yeah, it's, it's iron, it ward off the, the evil of the fairies. Who I should point out, we shouldn't be calling them fairies. We should be calling them the good people or our good neighbors. So, <laughs> Well, that depends because if you're, depending on what group you're in, because the, the Norse tradition called them land elfar, which just basically translates to land elves. And, you know, they could be good or they could be bad. But that's like a common trope with the fairies is that they could they could be good or they could be bad, depending on where they are and if you treated them right. I just, yeah, I the, the jinn are the same way. The jinn yeah, exactly. Very good or very bad. They're not. They're 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 just another kind of people. They're like yeah, they're like true chaotic people. characters. <laughs> so they are always meant to be people or to be humans or well, so, not necessarily people, but like they are not gods and they are mm -hmm. not. They're that's it. That's why I think the fact that they're so commonly tied to archaeology is fascinating because they're not all powerful. Mm -mm. You know, they may have more things that we have, but then they have other abilities. You know, like think of all the stories of, of like selkies being trapped because you take away their seal skin and they can't turn back into a seal and, and, and flit away. And they, they fall into that kind of lore. They, they're limited in their power. And, and the jinn, for example, are very clearly talked about as sort of like a, a, a other, an, another sort of creation, another kind of, of people. And the fairies are often talked about in that way to some degree as well. And, and they're they're not really dramatically more than us. They're just sort of different in, in many ways. Well, yeah, and when you look at the Native American ones, they're almost, I mean, the little people, they're usually described as human-looking, but they're not described in the same way that, like, incarnate gods are described. Yeah, yeah. And, and, 
And that's why I like this sort of people who are not people or, yeah, or right. extra humans. And it's the lore that they got wiped out by other people's technology. That that makes it into a lot of fiction, too. Robert E. Howard's, I think it's Bram McMorn. Yeah. Well, a lot of those stories are him uh, fighting these Picts, uh, which are basically little people who live right. in the ground, right? Well, so so Robert E. Howard and and Lovecraft and Arthur Machen, all of these major figures in kind of early fantasy and early weird fiction and early horror, what they're all pulling off of is... so. Basically, it took folks a while to deal with the implications of, of evolution. It kind of threw them for a loop. And we were talking about this recently on, on Archie Fantasies with Piltdown. That, you know, mm -hmm. as Ken pointed out, one of the reasons why Piltdown was so, was so easily taken was it had a big brain and that made us feel at least a little better. Right. But the thing that separated us wasn't just that we can walk upright. <laughs> And so the same thing's kind of happening here that, well, maybe not all of our lore is bullshit and, and maybe some things of our kind of figurative history are not completely thrown out that maybe they're relics. They're what we call euhemerisms of past events that have come down to us as gods and monsters and things of all kinds. So you began to have a number of antiquarians and archaeologists who seriously looked at folklore and tried to map fairy lore like you would say take, you know, ancient stories of anomalies and map it onto the idea of ancient aliens today. It's, it's very similar. It's almost identical in many ways. The guy that did the most of this was a folklorist by the name of David Mac Ritchie. And both of his books are, you can find them on archive.org or Google Books, wherever you can find them all online, where he's just going through and he's finding the idea that fairies are, you know, fa fairy lore here can be tied to Neolithic tombs. And fairy lore here can be tied to chamber tombs and to stone tools. Now, he doesn't believe that they are supernatural, but other people in his community or in the, like the sort of community of archaeologists and folklorists did, like uh, Evans Wentz, uh, who later becomes a major person who brings Buddhism into the West. But they are all, this may sound really surprising, but these folks are like, oh, there's an ancient race in Europe, or maybe it's tied in Elendils. This is all, the lines between academia and professionals and non-professionals and then people in what we might call more outre communities like theosophy, like the, the Order of the Golden Dawn, like the, the occult underground of London. One of the things I've been writing about a lot is that those walls were a lot less um, high and solid. They yeah, more porous. Think. Is what you're They're very here. porous, yeah. <laughs> so that brings back to Netta, right? I mean, yeah, like, exactly. Right. So, you know, the people that she's hanging out with, like Dion Fortune, who basically myth makes, she's a major uh, occult writer on this stuff, who myth makes a lot of this stuff after her death and says that she was tormented by elementals, that gets into, like, weird internal politics of the, the Order of the Golden Dawn and its subsequent, like, sort of splinter groups and successors. Uh, and basically... It's sort of on the outskirts of all of that world. So the idea that fairies and archaeological sites, she dies on an archaeological site that's associated with fairies, that actually kind of thematically is part of this whole phenomenon. And I love the fact that she, she apparently told people that she sometimes goes into trances and if, if she for dies... Days. For days, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. Just don't don't call a doctor because she'll be fine. Yeah. <laughs> it's, woman, yeah, it's, it's this young woman from 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 London, and she she had gone up there supposedly to heal somebody. She was considered a healer in the occult in the occult world of like 1920s London, and she goes up there for about a month, and she's at like an inn, or you know, like a like a what we call a B and B today, and. She tells that to the to the owner of it at one point. It's like, oh, I go into trances. So if you see me like looking dead on the bed, just just 
don't, don't, whatever. It's cool. It's cool. Just stick and, a mirror know, under just, my nose. Exactly. This ties in the whole like idea of astral projection and, and, and trancing and all of that. But apparently one night she goes out and eventually is found. And this is like in November in Scotland, you know, a place where when I visited last, what was it, May or June, there was snow on the mountaintops. So, uh, yeah, she doesn't freeze to death, but she died. I mean, she died of exposure almost certainly, right? Yeah. She says she's literally wearing like a robe and carrying a knife. So you said she was on a fairy mound. Oh, you, you've mentioned well, those a few times. What what exactly are those well, fairy mounds much, or fairy forts? It is pretty much like anywhere in... So almost every archaeological site, especially anything that's visible in certain parts of, of Europe, is going to have either stories of wizards or people that turn into stone. But a lot of them have fairies. And that one specifically was, in fact, called... And I, I don't speak Gaelic, but the, the Sheathian or the Sheathian Moor, quite literally the Great Fairy Hill. But it is, it is almost impossible. Uh, we're going to have uh, a speaker at the Society for American Archaeology meetings in our session, presuming it gets through approval, which I think it will, who writes about fairy rafts, about like basically ancient stone sites that are later seen as the sites of fairies. I mean, basically, it's almost find me an archaeological site that's not tied to that. But the hill that she it, was on, was it a burial mound? Uh, there were standing stones there. Okay. Uh, it's been it's been since there there were not by the time when she was there, but there would have been uh, about a hundred years earlier. Okay. In in um in Cornwall and in the Lakes District, there are archaeological sites, Long Meg and her sisters, and the Merry Maidens, which are they're standing stones or standing stone circles. And in both cases, the individual stones are 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 said to have been actual witches who yeah. were turned to stone by somebody who's pissed off at them because they're dancing naked under the moonlight. So again, there's again this con- this connection made between, in this case, megalithic sites, and in this case, fairies, not a witch is not fairies, but I think it's the same kind of thing. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and, and Ken, you've been up, you've said you've been up to the Orkneys, right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And, and I mean, you, you were telling me how amazing it is and how there's just like this incredible resonance with what we see as like fantasy stuff today. Oh, absolutely. And, yeah. Yeah. And, and all of those, all of those kind of have these same kind of stories. I mean, basically, and this shouldn't be a surprise. I mean, take a look at, you guys have talked about ghost hunting in the past. You've had that on. Every old house, every God forbid, every old hospital, every old abandoned anything. Insane asylum, come on. Yeah. Those are the asylum. best. Those places are stereotypically haunted. Right. Oh, yes. And even though they may have no like particularly good reason from a historical perspective, uh, does this look old? Does this look like there are, you know, things to happen here that I don't entirely understand? Well, the same now that you guys were asking how old the sort of the Solomon's seal thing is that idea is actually quite old the uh, Solomon seal, yeah well but but the idea that these things are haunted i just was oh, using as a, as a comparison sorry, sorry. like sarah Sim- oh, yeah, sarah yeah. semple and others they've talked about finding archeo- like archaeologically finding anglo-saxon burials in ancient neolithic mounds uh, anglo-saxons say about uh, 1400 years ago finding 1400 years ago people burying folks in mounds that are like 5000 years old 4000 years old and this being from what historic records we have, probably criminals, people you don't like because, well, that place is infested with fairies and demons. And if you really hate this person, you'll bury this, all this. This leads me to a question, though. So we're looking, say, looking at you guys have looked a lot, of course, at, at Bigfoot, Sasquatch. And there seems to be right. I mean, right now, there's this tradition of looking for physical evidence of Bigfoot and most of the evidence is of footprints. It, 
is there any, and we have a show called Finding Bigfoot. Why do we not have a show called Finding Fairies? And are there out, are people out there looking for tiny, tiny little footprints of these small creatures of these little people? And if not, why not? Well, I think there will be now. <laughs> yeah, I've started, I've started this. On my show. And I have we, a funny story for you. I well, have, I rec- I have I just, some good just, stuff for you. Go ahead, Jeb. Oh, no, go ahead, go ahead. Okay, so there are actual fairy artifacts that have been found. That's um, what I want to hear about. That, yes. and, what are and they? They do exist. So the most impressive, do you want the most impressive or the least impressive first? Is there, a, is there really a huge difference? <laughs> I was going to say, this sounds very subjective. It seems like a very... That's true, that's true. So, okay, so the one that the one that I think I personally think is the least impressive is uh, are the McLeod clan's fairy flag. Oh, yeah. And that's yes. because the picture that I've seen of it is like this... It's a black and white picture, which is unfortunate, and that's the one I've seen. But it looks like this... Um, like this old piece of linen that's just been shredded to pieces. I mean, it looks like like those banner flags that you hold up at homecoming and someone's punched through the center of it. And they've okay. just kind of draped it with like a drinking horn and like this old looking lamp. There, there was a documentary on the fairy faith that's on YouTube and they had it in there and it was in color and video and it is no more impressive than your black and white. Picture. Yeah, it, it's, it looks like a cleaning rag that someone has yeah. decided is a thing. Is it blurry um, as well, like a picture of Bigfoot? No, it's pretty clear. Yeah, yeah. it's it looks pretty modern actually. And the fairy flag apparently was given to the McCloy, to the McLeod clan by Queen Tatiana herself. And supposedly the firstborn sons of the family can unfurl the flag and unfurl said powers. I wasn't able to find what those powers were, but I'm assuming that they're impressive or something. But that one to me, I think, is the least impressive because it's it it's just somebody's dish rack that they've decided right. is a fairy flag. I'm um, ready for the most impressive one now, Sarah. Well, there's two yeah. of them, I think. Well, my favorite one right now, which Jeb probably might know a little bit about, is the uh, the tiny mummy that was found in the San Pedro's Mountains in Wyoming. Oh, sure. And this one, of course, it has vanished over time because, as all fairy mummies do, they vanish. But this one apparently was around long enough to get um, x-ray, and we all know how reliable these x-rays can be. And there is a black and white photo of this thing. And if you just look at the little photo, it looks like one of those little, it's got kind of a human-y looking face and it's got its yeah. legs crossed and its arms. It looks like a sitting Buddha, but it's got like a kind of a person face. I've seen a picture of it, but I don't know a lot about it. Well, here's the thing. When you look at the x-ray, this is where they made their mistake. When you look at the x-ray, you can clearly see, especially if you've ever seen an x-rayed mummified cat from Egypt. It's clearly a mummified cat that someone has posed and then mummified. And it probably accounts for the weird face because I'm assuming if you were to shave all of the fur off of a cat's face, you would probably get very similar facial features out of it. We're not recommending to listeners that they shave their cat's face. I would prefer you not do anything quite so cruel to your cat. And that's one of the best examples, is it? Uh, yeah, well, that one I like just because it's like, it takes a minute to kind of process what you're looking at. And honestly, if they okay. hadn't had the x-ray, I probably would not have figured out that that was a cat. I'm going to say in Egyptian mythology find that that's the fast evidence. Uh, wow. <laughs> and I can like... Somebody, can my, somebody mute Blake, please? My, <laughs> Is that my, possible? Was, was the He's other one you're going to mention, was the other one you're going to mention the, the luck of Eaton Hall or was it a different one? Oh, no, I didn't find that one. No, this is a different one. Um, this is the, the golden boat. Um, I'm going to mispronounce this one. The brighter gold boat. It's part of the, um, the brighter golden horde that was found a while back. 
Mm-hmm. I don't know if anybody remembers. I was found by a, a metal detectorist, like all of these yeah, things. Yeah, I'm, I'm vaguely familiar with that one. Right. So there's this little tiny, and it's really cool. It's this little teeny tiny ore boat. Uh, and it's I believe it's got, uh, I want to say six oars on each side. So it's a 12 oar boat. It's a teeny tiny little thing. It's 7.25 inches by 3 inches and weighs 3 ounces. It's got benches, row locks, two rows of nine oars, I'm sorry, and a paddle rudder. It also has little tiny tools for grappling, three forks, a yard derm, and a spear. And all of these are made out of gold. And they're all within proportion of the boat. So there's all these little teeny tiny gold objects. And, in and here. this was found in the ground. This is part of the golden hoard. So part yeah, of the hoard, yeah. Wherever the hoard was found, this was found right, along with it. Right. And there are pictures, and it is really pretty. Now, that is the, pretty cool. It is. It's really cool. The mainstream or the lamestream explanation for this boat <laughs> is that it's a Celtic votive to the sea god um, Manmanen MacLear. But any true fairy enthusiast would know that this is actually a magical boat that was used by fae royalty when they were leading their little fairy Viking raids uh, against other fairies, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. But that was that my. Sounds, that sounds reasonable. Right. That one was my favorite just because the boat is so freaking cool to look at. Between the boat and the mummy, I like the mummy because that's stateside and there's really not a whole lot of like fairy evidence stateside that isn't things like elf shot and that kind of thing. The monster talk aspect, I have to mention that that there was recently um, a a thing going around on Facebook and the internet where where it showed what looked like a mummified fairy. Jaime Masson. Yeah, that guy. Yeah. He. I don't know. He's involved with so many terrible, terrible hoaxes. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> well, why. Funny, we covered the Roswell slides on Arctic yeah. Fantasies in our Roswell yeah. episode. And this I, is kind of the same made, thing. Well, this is a, we, we, we've actually covered this concept before. Is what we would call a gaff, uh, yeah. where it's an entirely artificial art. It's artistic. It's beautiful. Yeah, they really uh, are. But I don't know uh, why people would find it compelling. But then again, people find those clearly photoshopped. Uh, pictures of people, you know, archaeologically uncovering giant skeletons and oh, yeah. birds in the, in the, lo- in the corners. So you can tell it's from a hoax site, you know. Women in Archaeology is a show about archaeology by the women of archaeology. An alternating panel of women archaeologists discuss the issues in archaeology that impact professionals and the public every day. Check out Women in Archaeology for a different perspective on the past today at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash WIA. Now let's get back to the show. We have, in Connecticut, we have a really, we actually have a little people's village. Do you? Oh, that's right, you do. Yes, which anybody can go to. There are these little miniature little houses. They're all in ruins now. And, you know, the scuttle, the the rumor is that this is a little people's village. Nobody knows exactly who built it. And it's it's strange and it's odd. And there are all kinds of paranormal things that happen there. (laughs) If you look into it even a little bit, you find out that it was part, it was an exhibit at, there's an amusement park nearby. And they built this, and it was a. They took a, a little train, a miniature train, could take people through the little people's village, and you could sit there and eat your popcorn and cotton candy and look at the little people's village. This part of the amusement park, it's still, the amusement park's still open, but this part of the amusement park has been kind of abandoned, and the, the the little people's village has been left to decay, and the trees have all grown up around it, and so now 
people don't remember that this was part of the amusement park, and so there are all these stories about these paranormal little people's ghosts haunting Ohio has the one village. Too. Ohio has, Ohio, I don't know if it's the same like backstory, but Ohio also has the sort of lore that in multiple places there is the, the creepy and hostile town of little people. They don't say it's fairies, they say it's a town of like actual little people. Smurfs. I don't want to leave our listeners like one little blue Smurfs. I'm just going to add that we have a, a place in Denver as well. It's called Tiny Town, and it's reputedly haunted by tiny ghosts. <laughs> uh, I'm imagining that all these could be used for like the, the a, a tiny version of The Walking Dead. <laughs> so it's not even what? like they're little people. They're they're little people ghosts. Yes, apparently. In Connecticut, we have the Melonhead Village, which mm-hmm. are and we're not the various stories. The stories vary, but in one case, they they're they're little people, but they've escaped from a mental hospital yeah. where they were kept. Because they have deformed heads and therefore whatever. So they're not paranormal, but they're out there and there's a lot been so much inbreeding and you don't want to, you don't want them to find you because they'll kill you and eat you. So that's, a, that's an urban legend. We've got that here in Georgia. There's a place out here. There's actually a couple places it's attributed to around Atlanta. Same really? Time. Yeah. Are they I, knew about that in, I knew about that in Michigan and Ohio, but I didn't know about that in the South. Yeah. So it is absolutely an urban legend here too. So that's, well, that's the nature of urban legends, right? So. Mm-hmm. All right, yeah. So what I want to say though is, Jeb, you, you you brought up this idea, this hypothesis that maybe fairies were real. So let's not leave our listeners hanging. Did that turn out to be true? Were they actually an ancient race? No, I mean the and, and I also and I do want to tie <laughs> this, I do want to tie this into the fiction a little. I so I mean we now fully are aware that these buildings we find they are they you know things like burial ma- burial mounds uh, or chamber tombs people would go in and out of them but they were largely for funerary i mean my favorite one of these is uh newgrange it's a massive building in ireland early neolithic ireland it was several hundred years older than the great pyramids when it was built it was the largest stone structure on earth and People, we know they went in and out. In fact, we know they went in and out on the winter solstice because of the way it is aligned and the fact that the sun is actually made to sort of shade or or, uh, shine into the back of it. But this notion of kind of like there being an ancient race and it being, it was really a lot of it was reflecting colonialism. You know, I mean, McRitchie, when you read his stuff, it's, you'll see like, Oh, the the later people came in and they set up their castles and there were like friendly natives they kept in the basement and they were the brownies and they were servants. And you're like, oh, God, this is <laughs> this is just like colonialism writ mad. And so, yeah, what you I think you've got is people sort of last gasping, but these the uh, not wanting to get rid of older lore, but the the sort of payoff on that. There's the there's the author, Arthur Mockin. And he's followed by Lovecraft, and he's followed by Howard, Robert E. Howard. They all took that idea. I mean, there are literally a number of stories by Arthur Machen that inspire these others that are directly from Mac Ritchie. I mean, individual bits from it are directly from uh, Mac Ritchie. And so that then forms a lot of ideas in fantasy fiction about, like, goblins under the earth and, like, sort of lost hidden races tunneling and, and all these sort of weird ideas of people that are hiding amongst us and that are sort of savage uh, that that continue on. Mm-hmm. And uh, here in the Northeast, among the native people, the little people are semi-subterranean. They are they live underground. Um, and, and in fact, the evidence of their existence, if you walk through the woods, you find what we would probably presume to be little animal dens or rodent burrows or tree throws. And 
and native people will say, no, those are the homes of the little people because they live underground. Well, it's interesting, though, because, well, again, with the, the Norse uh, land alfar, they can actually shapeshift. So, like, when you look out your window and you think you see a person and then you look out there and there's really a fox running across the yard, that's that's the little per- that's the land alfar. It's just shifted mm-hmm. into a fox so it can run away across her. So that's kind of interesting. But Ken, tell us about the um the the stone structures in Connecticut or uh, in the New England area that you've encountered and that have become an issue with uh, some of the tribes up there. Right. Well, what I think what I think is happening up here is that there is this substrate of the story of the little people, um, and they they live semi subterraneanly and. But then these folks, the Mohegan, have lots of stories and that, that you could probably trace back to sometime in the early to mid-19th century, stories of these little people. Well, when the Europeans come in, they cut down all the forests where all these little people live. They put their farmsteads in there. They build they build houses, they build barns, they build outbuildings. They have cider mills and, and fulling mills. And they make a go of it for a while. And the Indians, of course, are pushed off to the margins. But then those farms become economically non-viable, they're abandoned, and then all of the houses fall down. The only thing left are the stone foundations, including the outbuildings, little beehive structures that they use for, for root cellars or for ice houses or for other, other storage reasons. And, but then the forest grows up all around it, and the stories, the, the knowledge of what those things were used for is lost, and it becomes mystified. You walk in the woods. Small. And they look small. Yeah, exactly, because they're, they've collapsed. And you, you walk through the woods and you see, I commonly hear this, giving people walks through the woods, hikes, and they see a foundation. They see a little stone structure. And they say, why is this here? This is the middle of the freaking woods. Why would this be here? Right. And you have to explain to them, well, actually, 150 years ago, there was a bustling community here. It's been abandoned because farming was not economically plausible in this area and so it's been abandoned the trees have grown all up and any connection between kind of the modern world and what was going on 200 years ago in connecticut has been has been cut so what well, that, happens and, and before you move on ken before you move on that repeats what had happened after the 16th century i mean there are there are tales by like the pilgrims when they land it's like wow it's like providence it's like you know god yeah. laid this all out there's things that almost look like roads there are things that almost look like gardens like no 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 before you brought diseases, those were roads. Those right. were gardens. Exactly. And this wasn't all forest until 90% of the population died in the 16th century. And you do real, you realize that, that it was kind of standard explanation by the Puritans is that they were, in fact, the equivalent of the new Israelites. The Indians were the Canaanites. And oh, yeah. God, God was visiting these plagues upon the Canaanites to clear the land. Yes. So that the pilgrims wouldn't have to shoot them, but they could just move in and the land would be cleared, cleared of, of people. Oh, but what happens, sky cake. Yes. But what, what happens, though, then, is that you've got the, the New England Antiquities Research Association and the Barry Fell crowd. They, they rediscover all of the, this, all of this evidence of previous usage of these woodlands by European settlers, and they mystify it. They say, what, what is this doing here in the middle of the woods? And they're the ones who say, you know what, this is evidence of a much older occupation. They, they are, in fact, usurping that landscape from native peoples and saying, no, we've been on this landscape at least as long as they have. And that's when you start seeing all these equinoctical and solst- solstitial alignments being proposed 
for people's foundations, for stone walls, for piles of stone that that archaeologists and historians believe are merely the the end product of clearing those 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 lands for farming, and they become part of a ceremony, a year an ancient European ceremonial landscape. But what's really interesting now is native people, Mohegans, Pequot, especially there, the two are two recognized tribes here. They are now reclaiming that landscape by saying those stone chambers, those stone walls, those in fact were built by us. In some cases, the shaman, our, our shaman made them, or they actually were, the smaller ones especially, were actually built by the little people. So in a sense, you can understand, they're reclaiming that landscape. They're, they're, they're repositioning themselves on that landscape after, in their opinion, the Europeans tried to usurp them from that landscape. So you get all this other, this political stuff going on, when here we are archaeologists, we just, we would like to dig these sites and to be able to determine from a material perspective, an archaeological perspective, who built them and when. And all you do, all you end up as an archaeologist living in this area is you get everybody pissed off at you because everybody has this, this investment in what these things actually mean. And nobody wants them to be farming outbuildings because that's not romantic or sexy. Well, and that's, I think, what happened 100 years earlier with where this very stuff in archaeology starts. Like, well, people didn't like what archaeology... We generally just kind of piss everybody off. It's yes, our, there our you nature. go. But I think it's interesting how the Native Americans are using that to reclaim the land itself. Um, I, I, At least in a spiritual sense, yeah. Right, right, right. I mean, and it, it does allow them to have a claim to it historically, and we've talked about how having that historical claim to something gives a group power and i'm all for them like getting back their power and all that kind of stuff but i'm also an archaeologist so i i would like to have those things recorded properly oh um, absolutely absolutely yeah and as far as the fringe is concerned i mean they're they're not uh what is that but they're, they're just outbuildings they're nothing magical yeah. well but, see, this reminds me also what jeb mentioned in his manuscript about the uh how the spiritualist movement relied heavily on the idea that Native Americans were spirit guides. Like, even oh, yeah. Yeah. they themselves were being sort of uh, given, given almost minor deity roles, you know. Um, but as much as they were exoticizing people and doing all that, that crap that, like, is not good, they were often also, like, useful political allies, at least to a point. Yeah. To, to, mm. to, to indigenous people being ground down by the sort of growing American state. So it, it, gets, it gets complicated. Because yeah, well, then you get into that whole now. noble savage thing. And, and, yeah. Well, the, the, the track of the the, uh, the the sort of turn of the century fairy fan, uh, I don't want to say fantasy, but that kind of is what's going on. The the the, the, the Cottingley fairies story. Um, oh yeah. Yeah, we like can't do a show without mentioning them at least. Oh no. no. <laughs> Well, we we bagged on we bagged on Conan Doyle repeatedly on our show, much to Sarah's chagrin. I didn't say Jeb has ragged on Conan yeah. Doyle. I yeah. still have a special place in my heart. Um, no, listen, listen. I am I am a Sherlock Holmes nerd, and I love those stories. <laughs> but but here's the the deal with that, which is really super ironic, is that. Uh, and I think I shared this 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 piece with with Jeb is that you can find I mean not only is Sherlock Holmes a rationalist and uses deductive logic and has a true scientific mind and we we compare that to Conan Doyle and his embrace of spiritualism but there in in a number of the stories there is very explicitly uh, people suggest to Sherlock Holmes that the explanation for a particular horrible tragedy is paranormal 
And in, in three or four of the stories, Sherlock Holmes very explicitly says, I have no, I have no interest in the paranormal. Yeah. In fact, in the end of one of them, he, he basically, he says, um, the world is big enough for us. No ghosts need apply. Yeah. yeah. And it's interesting. So it's not just this kind of general thing. Very explicitly, Sherlock Holmes says, it, it, he effectively, um, uh, conveys Occam's razor a number of times saying, well, maybe we can consider vampires or maybe we consider ghosts, but you know what? We need to eliminate all of the other more plausible explanations before we, we kind of uh, surrender to a paranormal explanation. Which well, I, I think I'm there's a fatal flaw being made or, or a fatal uh, correlation being made here and that, that people do this a lot when it comes to writers and their well-known characters and that is people like to equate those characters with the writer themselves and that is an error that should not be made like we shouldn't say that holmes is doyle or that doyle was writing himself as holmes maybe he was maybe he was but we shouldn't make that assumption because literally it is very common for authors to write characters that are a hodgepodge of various people or traits that they want to project and You know, he purposely made Sherlock non-human. Like, he's emotionalist. He's hard logic. He has no room for the metaphysical. All right, well, that's that's not entirely true, Sarah, but we can talk about it another time. No, that's fine. The point here is, he wrote 60 goddamn stories in which he presents something who is who says, who professes something that is antithetical to what Conan Doyle actually believes. Oh, yeah. And Conan Doyle, Conan Doyle was subject to a whole lot of shit dumped on him by scientists who said, oh my God, you can't, you don't really believe fairies, do you? Right, right, right. So I, I find it, I'm not, I'm not casting dispersions. I'm finding it super interesting yeah. that a guy who feels kind of burdened by all of this opprobrium about his beliefs that he creates a character who in fact is somebody who would say to Conan Doyle, you know, man, you're full of shit. You're, you're, you're not being sensible. And I think that's fascinating. Right. I think that was his way of dealing with it. Yeah. Well, maybe. And, 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 and the reason we've talked about him earlier, in addition to, to Ken being a giant, uh, Holmes nerd, and we may talk about that further on Archie Fantasies. Sure. But we brought him up because he largely minted, not entirely, but had a major role in minting the idea of a mummy's curse. Which is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> he like, was really into it, man. One of his friends who, who died, he said, died of the mummy's curse. That friend was largely the inspiration for the Hound of the Baskervilles. The most supernatural of the home stories. Yes, absolutely. And the most archaeological of the home stories. Yeah, he wrote the, what was it, Lot something two? Lot 249 or something like yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. Which was he, big, he creates the the sort of the first mummy, like killer mummy story, one of the yeah. very first. Yeah. So, no, all, and that's, and he's a perfect example of how you'd have people like E. Wallace Budge, the keeper who's breaking, like, every law imaginable, stealing <laughs> shit from Egypt, like, he would describe mummies as bone meal yeah. to, like, sneak them into the UK and sneak shit out on, like, on, like postal boats and with the help of, of, like, military friends, much to the chagrin of colonial officers. He's very scientific, and yet he's also a member, a speaking member of the Ghost Club. And he gets really annoyed when occultists want to come into the, into the, Brit- to the Egyptian galleries of the British Museum, except when they're his friends. <laughs> and this is all and his book of the dead his translation of it becomes a huge part of the occult scene in the early 20th century uh culture and all of this is blended together and that's where i think that's all important for understanding this fairy stuff it was a real folk belief 
But because of the freakout over modernity and over what Max Weber would call the disenchantment that comes with modernity, uh, the sort of removal of magic by science in the 18th and 19th century, uh, you had lots and lots of academics who were more than happy to sort of take old lore, like W.B. Yeats, the, the famous uh, Irish poet, who was trying to forge sort of a nationalist artistic tradition and was taking old bits of folklore and turning them into what we think of as fairy lore today. Well, and Doyle was a big proponent of the Cottingley fairies in that, like, I don't think they would have been as popular as they ended up being if he hadn't given them his stamp of approval. Oh, no. Building on that whole concept of Doyle is Holmes, Holmes is rational, therefore, if Doyle says that these fairies are real, they must be real. You know, and then and that's where we get this whole fairy thing, even though when you look at the pictures, I mean, I know photography was new back then, but (laughs) the concept of manipulating a photograph was not unknown to the Victorians. So I don't understand why someone photography. Yeah. Why someone didn't look at that back then and be like, ah, no, 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 no. And I'm sure some people did. Well, Houdini did. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He and Houdini were not, they did not see eye to eye on a lot of stuff. Did, have any of them be friends? I have yeah. not seen that. There was a movie made, I want to say, yes. in the 90s. Have yeah, you guys yeah. seen that? I have. Uh, and yeah. I don't know who plays Doyle. Uh, who plays Doyle? I, there's two books out on it in a TV show now as well. So what are, What's yeah, the name right. of it again? Sure. But yeah, the, the movie, I think it was the early 90s. I, I actually enjoyed it when I saw it. I haven't, I haven't thought about it or watched it in years. What was the name of but it? But it was... Oh my God! Was it the fa- a fairy story? I don't remember. I think I think I think it may be. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you mean specifically about the Cottingley fairies? Right? Yeah. Yes. Oh yeah. 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 Fairy tale, a true story. There you go. Okay. With uh, with let's see, um, Peter O'Toole plays Conan Doyle. That's what I. That's oh, what I thought. Okay. Yeah, and, and Harvey Keitel plays Harry. Plays Houdini. There you yeah. go. Yeah. Wow, that's fascinating. I'll have to check that out. Yeah, yeah. I, I want to. I remember it, it being entertaining. You found a hole in my collection. <laughs> it's not a Disney movie, but it like it's it's in that sort of style. It's a live action thing, 1997 by Icon by Paramount. Uh, it's not Disney, but it, it you could have fooled me from like just seeing the uh, the ads for it. <laughs> so but this is a really fascinating story throughout history. Is the whole Doyle's embracing of the fairies. <laughs> yes, we we've got to do a show about Conan Doyle and Sherlock Holmes and archaeology. And that's, I absolutely yeah. agree. Yeah, we yeah. we call it so you monster talk guys. Oh no, no, you that's know. fine. I'll, I'll tune in happily. I enjoy the show. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, and I, we're running long, but I, I just want to mention that as far as uh, fairies go, there's one thing that I've learned since I started this. It just fascinated me, which is that uh, one of the scary ideas behind fairies is the idea of changelings. And I always oh, yeah. interesting mm-hmm. story, you know, ha ha. You know, imagine, you know, your children are being changed out. But then, as an adult, I read uh, Martin Luther uh, and his passage on describing having actually met a changeling. And uh, as the parent of a kid with autism, I have to say what he's describing sure sounds like yeah. autism. I was going to say, Blake, I remember reading something that you wrote where you were discussing yeah, I, the disturbing imagery of a, of the, the way changelings are described, comparing that to... Oh, it's... it's, it's can I, you go into that? Because it's very well, powerful and it's very important. It, here's for sure. So the thing is, so there's been this, it is really just a, a hot topic among skeptical, act, skeptical activists, which is that um, recently uh, there's... 
this guy named Andrew Wakefield faked some data and, and basically started a giant movement saying that, that vaccines cause autism. Right. Right. And, and he published an article. Right. Yeah. And, and Which has since been retracted. Since exactly. been retracted. But, the, but once the idea is out there, it won't go yeah, away. Yeah, exactly. So what you see when, they, when they're a parent of, of a, a child with autism, what typically happens is you get a basically normal development until they get around two or three and then things start to change. And right. it can change to various degrees because they call it a spectrum disorder. It, 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 you get all kinds of different variations. But the behaviors change significantly. And a child that seemed like it was developing quite normally suddenly becomes a different person. In the right. And, and so what in the changeling lore, you basically have young children who seem fine and normal and then suddenly change. And when they grow up, they don't behave like normal people. They, maybe they eat a lot or they don't talk or they're, you know, they're mm -hmm. sullen. They're, they're, they're kind of the same behaviors you might see in an autistic child. And it, I think, based on what I've read, that it's entirely possible that the changeling lore and the whole legends of changeling is, is more than just a kind of Rip Van Winkle type, this, you know, kind of made up. Oh, story. yeah. It's an explanation of something that just parents didn't understand at the time. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. and it's also been suggested that changeling lore is a way of explaining postpartum depression. Because a lot of times you would have women oh, yeah. who do not bond with their children. And, of course, it's just this expectation that, you know, as soon as you have a baby that you're just going to be like, oh, it's the most magical thing ever. And for some people it is. Karen, don't take it the wrong way. Um, no, I've got a 16-month-old and I, yeah, I, I can appreciate that. Right. I mean, most people, most of the time there's a bond because that's what keeps us from eating our young. And, you know, but for some people that just never occurs. And instead of saying, you know, because mental disorders weren't really well known back then, they would say, well, the mother's not bonding because she instinctively knows that's not really her baby and it's been swapped okay. out. And so she can't mm -hmm. bond with it because it's an alien baby. Yeah. The, the, for, our, for our listeners, the, the, the basic the concept here is that fairies would steal human children and they would replace them with a very old fairy that disguises itself under a glamour as the, as, as the human child. But, of course, it's sickly and it has all these problems. Ooh. And so one way to like fix this would be to threaten the child or beat it or hold it over a fire or do all these things so that the fairies would eventually go, OK, fine, we'll, we'll switch them back. Yeah, These your best case scenario. Your best case scenario is you do something like brew beer in an eggshell, right. and then the the fairy sees this and says, "I've never seen anything like that before," and oh, oh I've given myself away. <laughs> but it was often it was often worse. And so yeah, postpartum yeah. depression. I've heard just depression because also adults could be considered. There was yeah. the idea that yeah. you would leave sort of like a a blank behind, right. like like an mm -hmm. equivalent. So basically almost anything that we might go, oh, something happened to this person or they're strange and unexpected, they might be a changeling. Right. Strokes, mm -hmm. and dementia, all these things. Yeah. But the interesting thing to me is the same idea is being repurposed uh, as star children uh, yep. in modern times. Right, life. right. Exactly. It's not a fairy, but it's an alien. You know, I, right. Indigo children. Indigo children. Yeah, hey, so. hey, hey. I was an indigo child, okay? <laughs> Really? Wanna... Oh yeah. Oh yeah. It was weird. Don't. I don't yeah, want. But it the, just. But I think that's. I mean the the. I mean I'm not the one who invented the, the equation of of fairies and aliens. I mean that goes at least as far back as as Jacques Vallée. It's a very logical 1960s. one though. 
of course, he was like, well, that means that there's something real behind all this. And I'm like, or there's not. <laughs> right. um, but, uh, but yeah, the, the fact that there's a sort of extraterrestrial or ultra-terrestrial version of every single bit of what we have is fairy lore. Indigo children for, for changelings, abductees for your, you know, they were away with the fairies, uh, Roswell debris for the strange objects. My favorite uh, fairy uh, artifact is the Luck of Eden Hall. I went and saw it in the Victorian Albert Museum last year. Yeah, what is that? It's, it's this beautiful glass that the Musgrave family, and they sort of started a trend of people doing this. There have been ones before, but that they said they had stolen from the fairies so they could heal a member of the family. And there are different versions of this. And there was this idea that as long as the, as long as the glass didn't break, the, the Musgrave family would, would continue to do really well. And they did eventually give it to the uh, what becomes the Victorian Albert Museum, and then the the Musgrave Mansion eventually sort of falls into economic disrepair. It doesn't ah, literally collapse. So you see, um, they shouldn't have given it away. Now, there's two cool things here. One, uh, I ran into this to some degree because uh, one Howard Phillips Lovecraft considered the Musgraves to be part of his family, and this was his one sort of big family story he would tell people in letters. And two. It kind of proves our point, because what it really is, is an 8th century beautiful Syrian glass okay. that probably came back from the Crusades. But did it have a gin in it? No, not a gem, but it's got beautiful colored lights, to, no. or, or, or not lights, but, uh, oh, not a gin. Oh, well, it might have. That I don't know. <laughs> but it's exotic, and you don't know who made it, and it certainly wasn't made here. Oh, fairies must have done yeah. it. Yeah. And to bring this back to Arthur Conan Doyle, there actually is a Sherlock Holmes story called The Musgrave Ritual. Yep. Ah, which has yeah. nothing which has nothing to do with this, but it's the Musgrave family and there's this bizarre ritual and they've they've got some important stuff hidden away. Yep. There's like a treasure um, or something. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's it's a, the it's like the, the crown of some of an ancient British king. Um Well that's it, not it, that it, far off. Yeah, yeah. It's not really that far off. And that, of course, to, to mention one more author who's very much influenced by all this stuff, um, including fairy lore, M.R. James. Uh, yeah. and, and Tolkien, uh, he's pulling this left and right. I mean, his Barrow Whites are, are you know, this, their weapons come from, from ancient barrows. Uh, so this is this is a big part, and we have just sort of forgotten it. We've turned it into kind of fantasy fiction, but then we've taken all the parts and turned it into again like our aliens and our spirits yeah. and our ultra-terrestrials. Yeah, it's it's really really cool how all these disparate pieces are all all can be fit together into one giant whole. Um, or one man. Yes. Yeah, I, I'm just Blake. I'm just I'm just disappointed in you. Because when, when Sarah said she was an, an indigo child, I'm surprised you didn't ask her, oh, I didn't know you were one of the indigo girls. Do you, do you know Which, how many people would even know what that's a reference to at this point? Hey, I like the indigo girls, specifically because they had the word indigo in them. No, no, no. My, my family was convinced I was an indigo child for like a brief half, hot minute. Well, there you go. So, and then it go. turned out I was just dyslexic. <laughs> we should... Uh probably try and wrap things up here but um as you guys know we always like to ask our guests at the end of the show what their favorite monster is but blake says to me that uh, ken is exempt from this so we will hear from <laughs> sarah and jeb sarah oh my favorite monster i really like werewolves i don't know why but i just love the concept of because it just depends on what culture you're looking at or what group they are. They're almost always evil, but some, especially modern werewolves, you know, they're like a new thing. And like, they're like, they've replaced the vampire with being the ultimate sex symbol. And so 
It's I no, they really are. Like you guys probably don't read smut, but I do. And um, the werewolf is like the new alpha male, like literally and figuratively. And so I I, I really like the werewolf just because of its evolution through prehistory to history to modern era. I, I read Hamilton, so yeah, I guess I do. But <laughs> sexy werewolves, sexy werewolves, yeah. Nice choice. Yeah, mine would be, I think, for almost my entire life and maybe still today, but definitely one of the sort of the probably the gateway that got me into all this madness from a very young age was the Loch Ness Monster. And I actually went to Loch Ness last year. Oh, yeah. And part of it was really cool. Part of it was uh, it's clear that this is a thing that a lot of people, I think, don't really believe in anymore. Um, which was sort of disappointing. And also the fact that I basically got to see the Loch Ness Monster four times last year. In the sense, and like, now we're going to cut it and we'll use that to ruin you, Jeff. No. Um, <laughs> the, the wave action, the sort of the, like the sort of unusual wave action you get there, I didn't expect to see it. I saw it several times. I actually got video of it. It's actually kind of fascinating. Like, huh. I have pictures that you could easily say, oh, that's, a, you could, you could, if you grained it up a little and made it black and white, that would be a Loch Ness Monster picture. So, that's probably my my kind of long-standing one but if you kind of glom all these things like these fairies and these aliens and demons all kind of together maybe this sort of people who aren't people these sort of extra people or, or ultra terrestrials i'm not certain so let's just say nessie <laughs> <laughs> so, so several answers in one okay yeah. so so here's it so karen what's your favorite monster oh We've answered this a, a couple of times before, but Jeff the Talking Mongoose is a favorite. Ah, We've yes. been talking about the the UK as well. From uh, <laughs> yeah, that that that's my favorite, I think. And Blake, which ones are yours? Still, I I hop around a lot, but uh, I I tend to go back to werewolves a lot. That's is awesome. And then of course I I bring up the the creature from the movie The Thing a lot. That's always oh yeah, because it's yeah. a shape changer. Uh, and it, it's really not even clear when it takes over if you even know you've been taken over. It's very interesting. Speaking yeah. of hopping around a lot, I may be doing a thing in a few weeks involving the Loveland Frog. Ah, okay. Because it's not too far away from me. I don't know. I'm not promising anything. But You're I, uh, I don't know about that. I may be doing some actual <laughs> legit work. We'll see. Legit <laughs> study in the popping frog. Oh, so, is your book, like, is it going to be like is it a done deal like do you have a date or um by the time this is out it should i have i recently edited a volume with university of alabama press lost city found pyramid with david anderson we've had on archie fantasies recently and that is out and you can get that on amazon and all the various places you can get those sorts of things i have another one that's tentatively entitled spooky archaeology that i've talked about a little and that is wending its way through if everything goes according to plan, and if it doesn't, we'll just cut this part later. I would guess about a year from now, or maybe a little longer, that it'll be actually like in print. Ken, nice. when's your book dropping? It, it is done, though. Ken's is early December, right? Yeah. Yeah, the, my 50 Sites book is early December. And I've, Jeb has shared his the spooky archaeology manuscript with a, a bunch of people, including me, and it's absolutely super. Herb. It's an excellent book. It is a good uh, they, book. They've got uh, the, the press has to has to pick it up. And I hide if you're interested in, in really the, the, the deep story behind a lot of this stuff. Jim's book is going to be the is going to be the reference Money guide. It's going to be the book. To and, that, and that's coming I, from I the guy who wrote the reference guide. So. 
Well, like I said, it's still kind of wending its way through, but hopefully it will be done in about a year, and then they can definitely just call me completely mad. Awesome. Well, that's outstanding. This was such a good thing. I, I really enjoyed doing this. I, I, of course, it would be great if we did around a table with beer, but, you know, this is awesome. Yeah. Well, this some of us fun. are around a table, and some of us have, well, cider, but anyway. Well, thank you guys for yeah. inviting us on. This Absolutely. has been a lot yeah. of fun. Great, great fun. Yes, this great was awesome. Great to have you guys on. A lot of fun. Houses and Human evolution makes us smile. Thanks for listening. We hope you've enjoyed what you've heard. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Remember to rate and like us wherever you listen. Be sure to comment on this episode and share us with your friends. You can contact us with your questions, comments, or angry email at archiefantasies at gmail.com or leave a comment on the show page. Show notes and downloads can be found at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com slash archiefantasies. You can also follow the blog at ArchieFantasies.com and follow us on Twitter at ArchieFantasies. Music was provided by Archeosuit Productions. This show is part of the Archaeology Podcast Network and is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle. Thanks again for listening. We don't do dinosaurs! See? Are you happy? Do you get it now? Do you get it? Honestly. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.